Suffreaks, it's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I had the immense pleasure of sitting back down with the man behind the best voice in Bitcoin podcasting, Matthew Mazinxius from the Crypto Voices podcast. Uh, we sat down to talk about the most recent quarterly update of the global monetary base figures that he and Fernando Ulrich publish uh, quarterly. Very interesting data collecting they're doing, and they're really highlighting uh, just how quickly uh, the balance sheet of the world's central banks are expanding around the world, particularly the base money. The, the growth of the base money around the world is is picking up steam, especially in the face of global economic shutdowns in the face of COVID-19. Uh, we talk about a bunch of other stuff beyond the monetary base uh, uh conversation you guys will obviously hear it if you're listening to this now i expect you to listen to the podcast this episode is brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking cash you freaks already know all about them but if you don't know about them let me tell you about them it's the easiest place to stack sats in the u.s you can stack sats send sats receive sats and sell sats if you so please we're saying sats 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 because sats are the standard you're not, we're no longer buying fractions of Bitcoin. We're buying whole sats. When you're buying whole sats, you can set it and forget it too via the Cash App. You can DCA via the Cash App. You can buy daily, weekly, bi-weekly. Set it and forget it. Get your stack sacking, stack sat, sat stacking automated. All right, it's, it's tongue twister. So if, on top of this, they have Cash App investing, which allows you to stack slivers of stonks. If, if stonks are tickle your fancy a little bit, and you want to get into the stonk market, you can do that via Cash App Investing. And guess what? You can stack slivers of stonks. You don't have to buy a whole stonk. If your favorite stonk is a little too expensive, you can buy as little as $1 via Cash App Investing. And because all of this is connected to your bank account, there's no four to five day waiting periods. You can start stacking sats or slivers of stonks today. In fact, Cash App may even be your bank account. They're offering account numbers and routing numbers so you can get your paychecks direct deposited to the app. Bank of the future, Cash App. Uh, Cash App Investing is a subsidiary of Square, member SIPC. And as always, when you download the Cash App for the first time, if you haven't done so already, what are you waiting for? Go download it. When you do, use the code StackingSats. That's S-T-S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Across. That's Owls Across. I actually had my father call me last night walking the dog. Uh, apparently, there's an owl in our neighborhood, and he he gave me some owl hoot, uh, uh lessons from the owl in our neighborhood apparently it's a it's two quick hoots and then a pause and like a little hoot so it's that's owls lacrosse download the cash app use the code stacking sats get your ten dollars send ten dollars to this great organization in chicago working uh to bring lacrosse and structure uh to inner city kids in chicago uh, love all you freaks. Enjoy this episode. If you're liking the content, please like, share, subscribe, review. Every little bit goes a long way. Uh, we love the fact that you guys keep coming back to this podcast. We've had our best couple of months ever and, and really proud uh, that you guys keep coming back. So enjoy. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. 
I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. I'm uh, on an outdoor screened-in porch. I got a pond in front of me. I've got a very familiar face on my laptop in front of me as well. I want to welcome back Maddie Mazinxious to the podcast from the Crypto Voices podcast. Maddie, how are you doing this morning? Marty, I'm all right. Good morning to you. Uh, it is uh, early afternoon here in the Baltic. Sun is shining, and uh, I guess I'm doing all right, all things considered. How are you? Doing well, man. Doing well. Uh, first 8 a.m. recording I've had in a while, but uh, <laughs> to line up uh, with a, a time that is formidable for you, I, th- I think getting up early is worth it, especially considering the topic we're about to dive into. Uh, I've written about it in the bent uh, about a month ago. August 20th, I believe, is when you released the most recent monetary-based report. Uh, for you freaks that don't know, the Crypto Voices podcast, Maddie and Fernando Ulrich have been doing uh, a a report quarterly on the state of the monetary base of the world's currencies and who's leading and how much monetary base money there is. So base money is probably what we're focusing on here. Uh, Obviously Q2 2020 was a huge uh, quarter for central banks considering the COVID lockdowns and the stimulus that ensued. So I figured uh, it'd be a good idea to get you back on the podcast to sort of dissect everything that went down in Q2 uh, the state of the global base monies, how Bitcoin fits into that picture, and what the uh, report may look like going forward, considering the way central banks are posturing right now. It seems like the money printers are going to continue going burr for for quite some time. Indeed, indeed, yeah. So uh, if you want to just get right into it, I mean, the um, I think the important thing with uh, the monetary base, which we've uh, tried to do. Like I've presented on this a lot and uh, Fernando has as well. And it's been sort of a key thing that we've done throughout our, uh, the life of our podcast, in fact, pretty much from the very beginning, um, which I think is always very important uh, when you're trying to measure something, value something, but also just sort of get a lay of the land, uh, understand you know, where you are in the world, is to make the proper comparison. So when we're talking about money, uh, with Bitcoin, uh, the money supply that you use it is, as you said, it's called the monetary base or basic money or base money. In the past, it was gold and silver. Uh, in the past uh, couple hundred years, you know, really from the Bank of England a few hundred years ago, that's the first modern, really modern central bank. Um, and then all the way up until 1971, we had sort of a blend of gold and silver at times uh, and fiat money. And then finally from 1971, we now just like purely fiat money standard as most hardcore gold bugs and Bitcoiners know. Um, but the, this money supply, where you find it, where it is, what it, what it means, uh, it literally is, that is the printing press today. So like if we talk about money and the printing press and like Bitcoin is, you know, this eventual uh, coin supply of 21 million, what does that compare with? Uh, it, is, it is this thing called the monetary base. And it's interesting because you can't always, uh, well, actually I have, th- there is no data aggregator in the world that does this. And I, I'm kind of always been curious about why that is hard to find. I think partly it's probably their uh, regulators trying to be a bit sneaky. They just don't want to, uh, to publish, publicize it. You know, cer- certainly the IMF, the BIS, uh, the bank for international settle settlements in Switzerland, like they know these numbers, 
They just don't publish it and aggregate it. Like there are some you can find on the Fed's websites and other websites. But literally, if you want to compile your own aggregate index, you got to go to every central bank's website to get it. Uh, so we've done that for the top 30 floating currencies. Um, and, uh, and then one more thing I'll say about this, just again, before we can maybe speculate on the future or dive into the numbers more, is the monetary base is different than any other money supply you might have heard from economists like M1, M2, M3, or even M0. And that the uh, monetary base is the only money supply which is truly like the most ultimate settlement in the financial system. Like this is how banks settle with each other. This is how banks settle with the central bank. This is how banks settle with their gov government. Uh, it's like the highest form of settlement in the banking system. So there is no more ultimate settlement. Like that's why they call it basic money. Uh, and it's comprised of two things. So it's like cash and coin that everybody knows, you know, dollars, euros, yen, notes, and coin. And then uh, this thing called bank reserves, which each, it's basically like each bank's account, each bank account for every bank at their central bank. So it's those two things together. Uh, reserves are a much more like liquid way to change the money supply, obviously, because it's mostly just a ledger entry, different than the actual printing of cash. Um, and those, that, that's the monetary base. And so every other money supply that you think about or you hear, you know, like M1, M2, M3, uh, those are claims. They act like money, we call them money, but really what they are, they are claims. And I'm not saying that's bad or good, I'm just saying understand that that's a different, fundamentally different thing than Bitcoin's, you know, 18 uh, point, what is it, 2 million right now? Uh, or, sorry, 18.5, I'm uh, blanking today. 18.5 million right now, um, and eventually the, the, the 21 million that we'll get to. That is the number that would compare uh, 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 to that is, is, is these monetary base, um, uh, base supplies from, from each central bank. And I'll give you one example, like this happens all that, like you, any article in the Bitcoin world or, or even in the mainstream world. Now people talk about it. They want to talk about inflation. They want to talk about this, that, and the other about what money supply we can compare with. Like usually they'll use like us M one which first of all, like it's just the United States, you know, money is a global thing. Bitcoin's a global thing. So it shouldn't just be USM one. Uh, and, and, and obviously they won't use a, a, a global sort of index. Although, as I mentioned, we can find sort of broad money supplies that are compiled by like the BIS and the IMF. Um, but those are usually a blend of like M two us doesn't even publish M three anymore. We can talk about that. Um, but anyway, I get on these tangents, sorry. One of the latest articles, which again, I think this was uh, improperly used, was the Winklevoss twins. They just made a uh, couple weeks ago the case for 500K Bitcoin. They did a lot of good reasoned arguments in that article, no doubt. Uh, uh, no problem with their, their reasoning. And certainly where they get to that number, about 500K is using uh, the gold supply, total gold supply uh, in the world, that's fine. But they show like two charts, again, US only, uh, U.S. only. Um, they show one is the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, which is close. That's close to the monetary base. It's actually the monetary base is a subset of the U.S. balance sheets. It's on the liability side. They show total assets, which is basically how the Fed gets that money that it creates and has the monopoly to create into the economy. Uh, they show the growth of total assets of the Fed. Okay, so that's kind of close to the monetary base. It's good to show. And then they show, like, talk about inflation and dangers of inflation. They show U.S. M2. Again, we're only looking at U.S. here, so it's an issue. Uh, in my view, if you want to like lay the, the, the landscape and the comparisons. Uh, so they show US M2, and then uh, again, they talk about the inflation rates there. 
M2 is completely different here because what, when, you, when you start to inco incorporate and encompass claims in this argument, claims on US dollars, claims on monetary-based money, that's a very different thing than like this, what the state does with its money. So the state, again, is monetary-based. They're the ones that create the money. It's on their balance sheet. That's where you find it. But the claims, that includes many things. It includes like a lot of free market things. It might include a lot of good things. It might include a lot of bad things. Uh, and by the way, Bitcoin has a ton of claims on it now, and it has almost since its inception. You know, MT Gox uh, uh, account holders have a lot of claims right now still outstanding on their Bitcoin that was there. Uh, whether they get that or not, or a discount, people are already trading MT Gox claims. Uh, those are claims. So that's a different thing. There's, you know, we can go on from there, you know, if you're cracking account, Coinbase account, everything. Those are all claims on Bitcoin. Uh, only if you hold Bitcoin on your node validating is when you have uh, sort of basic money Bitcoin. So are claims akin to leverage where you're levering out actual hard assets that those claims represent multiple times? Rehypothecating, probably a better word. Yeah, rehypothecation, uh, leverage, credit. Um, I think all of those can be used interchangeably. And I would just be careful like myself to say, like, I, I don't think that those in and of themselves are like evil or bad, but I do think that when you have a system where the basic money is controlled and mandated by a central authority that basically um, can at will change, uh, it's hard to do this on an on a audio podcast, but basically you, know, you, have, you, have a certain, you have a certain low level amount of, of basic money, then you have these certain leverage, as you say, or rehypothecation claims, whatever, uh, sitting outside. If you have a central authority that can basically at will change the supply of the basic money, that can really screw up uh, the society economy's view of what uh, appropriate leverage should uh, be. And so another easy example, Bitcoin makes everything very, very easy. So like you can have one Bitcoin, um, you know, you and, you and I could enter into a loan contract, uh, you lend me one Bitcoin. So now you don't have that Bitcoin. I have the Bitcoin. You have a claim on the Bitcoin, which is basically a loan. But then I could take that same Bitcoin. I could lend it to Odell. Odell could lend it to someone else. And all of a sudden, within you know, a couple of days, we can have four, uh, five claims on the very same Bitcoin, the very, very same Bitcoin. So it's not like inherently evil or bad that we do that. The question is just like, is that a good idea economically? How do people sort of manage their fin finances around that? And that is really, I think, the issue that our financial system is like facing today is that we have all of these claims, you know, circulating a small amount of base money. Uh, that pool of base money is completely at the control of these central banks. And uh, if, they, uh, if they so choose, the central banks can change the supply of base money, therefore uh, changing the ratio of those claims, outstanding. And it basically makes it very hard to calculate uh, where we are as a society or with money or with anything else and how, you know, what the proper demand should be uh, of, of those claims that, that circulate. So, um, yeah, it's a long-winded answer to your question. But uh, basically, the problem is when you have a monopolistic entity like a central bank that comes in and uh, distorts uh, sort of the value of the basic money and therefore the value of a lot of these claims that circulate on top of them.
Yeah, and I think one of the charts that really drives that last point that you made home that the claims can get out of hand is the chart of uh, top 30 fiat gold reserves versus monetary base historically. And if we're looking at it now, the, the gold reserve percentage of the global monetary base is hovering around 5%. So uh, global fiat currency is levered 20x, I guess is another way to say that. Yeah, I mean, if you're a if you're a hard, you know gold bug or hard money gold advocate, and you view gold as like the only form of market money, uh, at least the gold that's in central banks today, which is about 1.1 1. 1, uh, billion ounces of gold, compared to like six billion ounces that have been mined at all time. But that 1.1 1. 1 billion ounces of gold, if you mark that to market, um, it's uh, I'm actually finding it here. It's it's uh, uh, what is what is it? It's two trillion. I'm actually trying to find the chart here. It's only a couple trillion, basically, compared to the total, uh, which is uh, about 24 trillion in fiat. So, yeah, as you said, basically, um, there's another example where gold is basically completely detached today from any sort of monetary uh, settlement. And central banks, it, it still keeps central banks in check. Uh, they're worried about it. Like they've held it historically. You know, Ron Paul's gone off against Ben Bernanke and these uh, 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 the finance committee hearings, which he used to chair, which they always hated that he chaired, but he was like the most senior person. And he would go off against Ben Bernanke, like saying, you know, why do central banks hold gold? And Bernanke's just like, well, you know, it's tradition. <laughs> so they always try to uh, they always try to weasel their way out of like being beholden to any sort of hard money. Uh, and that's what they've achieved since 1971. They have definitely achieved that. Uh, they're trying to save the system today, but um, yeah, they're, they're just, they keep printing more and more and more. And, and the, the amount of basic money that they have printed is way out of whack compared to the amount of gold in their vaults. Uh, Bitcoin for sure is still a rounding error because you know, we're a $200 billion uh, dollar valuation of, of that 18.5 million Bitcoin that is uh, around the world. And, unless it's done in secret, which it might be done in secret at the moment, really no central banks are publicizing that they're directly holding any Bitcoin or reserving any. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, we're very early in the game from that perspective. And uh, I think that would be very interesting to see how that ratio will change uh, in the future. Yeah. Staying on gold, it's interesting to see the first two decades of this century. You have China and Russia really bolstering their gold reserves uh two countries that are historically um the victims of the weaponization of the u.s dollar in the uh, western dominated financial system and then you have somebody like canada who in recent years has completely depleted their gold reserves uh and sold them and so uh it'll be interesting to see in the long run how that plays out like are china and russia uh, making a, a long calculated um, play to accumulate gold to, to make a move on the global currency markets. Is Canada going to be shit out of luck? Uh, this is just a tangent, but that's one thing I've been following personally. Uh, not so much Canada, but the accumulation of gold reserves by China and Russia who have postured with each other in the past that they would like to get away from a petrodollar system. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, the, the, the long gold definitely is like a decades long thing, uh, you know, centrally centuries long thing as far as that goes and like whatever the game theory and stuff. I mean, there, there are plenty of arguments 
that the U.S. doesn't have a lot of the gold that they say that they do through these gold leasing schemes. Uh, we've talked about it a little bit, little bit on our show, and we don't have to go into that probably too much here. But I, I would say generally, yeah, it is, it is this sort of uh, – uh, it manages the tension between countries, uh, the gold reserves. And no doubt, like you said, uh, people that have suffered from the dollar or sorry, states that have suffered from the dollar, they've been pretty aware to buy it. But but even then, uh, it's hard to know because the gold reserves themselves, like in a, in a gross fashion, I think topped in like the, the 60s, in the 1960s. And then it, they trended down from the 60s until like literally until the financial crisis. And just after the financial crisis, it started trending back up again. So now we're at that 1.1 uh, billion ounce number. Uh, which is like literally almost, a, it's a little bit more than a sixth of the world's gold that's held in central banks if we believe that they actually hold the gold there. And again, that's another argument for Bitcoin as well. It's like you can't really easily prove that reserve. Uh, there's a lot of issues there. And, you know, it just, it, it keeps going on and on, you know, like with these arguments, with these old school, old school economic arguments, which I think are interesting, but in some uh, respects just exasperating. It's like we cannot change like the policy of the Federal Reserve, no matter how much we want to rail against it. And we can definitely show uh, what they do and 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 the problems that they cause in the economy. But we cannot change it, no matter how much we think we can, or somehow through our macro prudential, uh, you know, uh, advisors who are theoretically appointed by officials who are theoretically ele- elected by us. Uh, you know, we just we cannot change it really at the end of the day. It's just a, a total beast unto its own uh, regulatory capture, uh, creature of the state, so on and so forth. So I think it's very interesting to track all of these things. But uh, as we see with the growth of the basic uh, money supplies around the world, uh, they're not really slowing down. They tried to in the last couple of years uh, when things were co- sort of cooled off after the uh, financial crisis and pre-COVID, they tried to, but now, you know, you throw a wrench in the system like COVID. And uh, for the first six months of 2020, they have expanded the monetary base literally at a record rate for the modern central banking era, which is they're on pace to increase the monetary base globally 50%. 50%. (laughs) I'm trying to decide where I want to dive into because even before COVID, they tried to unwind, what was it, like $200 billion caused a credit crisis in the repo markets yeah yeah it was in september september of last year um Mm -hmm. i can't remember if it was 200 billion was was the number but yeah there was that uh sort of um that that craziness in the repo markets where the rates were 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 spiking and people were uh, losing confidence very quickly and the fed had intervened was it is it quantitative easing is it not but yeah, uh, they were on track to actually, there was the lowest rate of increase other than maybe uh, 2000, which was a year after the Y2K scare. <laughs> so in the year uh, 1999, they actually increased the monetary base globally, like 38%, all central banks. And that was because most people were freaking out about Y2K and started taking out a lot of cash out of banks. And then so they sort of like had to balance that out in the year 2000, didn't have to increase it as much. At least that's what it seems to be on, on paper. And then uh, in the uh, last two years, in 2018 and 2019, they only increased it a little bit less than 2%, a little bit less than 1%, uh, respectively. And yeah, until that, that sort of uh, tantrum that happened in September in the repo market, and then the, um, the, uh, obviously the COVID crisis that happened in, uh, in, in, in the start of this year, uh, they have just been back, back uh, greasing up those printing presses. So it has been... 
it has been crazy to see how, you know, just, you know, again, this is not predictable in the fiat world like it is in the Bitcoin world. Um, but if you d draw like sort of these long, long um, comparisons, or we have 50 years of modern data now since they've been off of the gold standard. Um, it's pretty wild to see how, how much those, uh, those, those compound growth figures are. And so that's what we, we report on in the, in the monetary base update. Yeah, well, let's go back to where you said a bit earlier, like we, as much as we want to, and we think what the Fed is doing is bad, we cannot control them. Uh, you also stated that the global monetary base has grown uh, at a rate of 50% in recent quarters uh, and then tie in how these central banks are posturing. NERP is becoming more popular. Bank of England announced last week that they're going to start figuring out ways that they can implement implement negative interest rate policies. We have Jerome Powell and friends thinking that 2% inflation is not enough. They're going to try to overshoot it because by their measurements, they've been undershooting it too much. So they're going to print so much uh, as to try to ins uh, institute more inflation than they have been able to historically. And so back to your comment of as much as we want to control them and stop them from what we deem is, is bad policy. Are they basically sowing the seeds of their own demise by doing this too quick? Like, how, can you help explain the gravity of a 50% growth rate of the global monetary base? Yeah, well, it is a record. It's a record rate if they keep it up. Um, so again, in Y2K, uh, that was uh, 30, I think I said 38, it was 34% annualized um, in, in 1999. And in 2008, it was 41%. In 2011, it was 31% uh, annualized. That's compound annual growth. Those are, those are huge numbers. So just rule, you know, rule of 72, right? So if something uh, grows, you might think that if something grows in 10% 10 per, 10 a year, it would double every 10 years. But now the rule of 72 shows us the power of compounding. And 10% is about the perfect rate for the rule of 72. So if something grows at a 10% rate, you slash off the percent sign, how many times does it go into 72? It's going to double every 7.2 years. So that's a 10% 10, 10 compound growth. Your asset will double every 7.2 years. At 50%, you're doubling more. Uh, like, uh, you're doubling in an amount of time, which is less than two years. So it is massive growth in terms of any sort of asset that we can think about normally, any sort of normal return of a bond or stock or dividend. So it's a massive uh, as far as the supply. And then again, I, I try to be like somewhat balanced what we say. And we all, I always say this in the, in the tweet storm as well, because supply is one thing, but we should look at demand. So theoretically, uh, you know, in economics, right? Like if the supply grows, uh, but the demand also grows at the same rate, then prices will not rise. So we should say that, like, if they think they know what they're doing and they're going to grow price, they're going to grow the money supply at 50% compounded, um, uh, you know, run rates and, and the, 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 the lifetime rate, by the way, compounded is over 12%. Um, so if they're going to grow these numbers, you know, at 12% a year over the long term, and they think that the demand will also rise for that money at the same amount, then prices won't rise. Uh, 
then the next question will be like, well, is the demand really rising at that, that level? Now it's impossible to really measure demand. It's unlike supply. So you have to actually, how do you infer that the demand is or isn't rising? We have to look at prices. <laughs> are prices rising or are they not? And this is, again, it's just hilarious, like just voodoo science that economists at, you know, central banks and the government paid institutions like to do talk about this all the time on Bitcoin podcasts, gold podcasts, you know, risk averse investment podcasts is, you know, the hedonics and John Williams measures this with stat, shadow stats, like the, the variables that they use in these indices have changed all the time since like the eighties. So they're completely, uh, softening the blow of what they say is price rises, uh, actual rise in prices, you know, inflation as they call it price inflation. And, um, and it makes it seem that they're not rising that much. You know, they throw in technology there. They thought they count renting costs more than they do uh, property costs and, and depending on the certain time of, uh, the, the certain decade that it is. Um, and then again, you look at all the big ticket items as well. You look at, uh, education, healthcare. I mean, these things are just rising like out of control and you put that into a, a, con a COVID economy now where like, you know, you can pay like $50,000 a year, a hundred thousand dollars a year to go to some Ivy league, you know, and, and take your courses on zoom. Uh, or, or, you know, it's just, it's just insane to think about how that is going to work itself out. Uh, yeah, of, the inflation rate on inflation rate on that alone, when you factor in the quality depreciation of moving your classes from physical <laughs> classrooms to Zoom, <laughs> has to be astronomical. It's unreal. It's unreal, man. So yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, like I would always be careful, and I might have said this last time we talked about this, but you know, like I, I don't know wh when that point is where like we really start to see. Um, hyper Bitcoinization and we start to see, you know, really, really people move into gold, uh, in a way that they haven't done in the last 50 years. Uh, I don't know. Again, I'm not like, I'm not a, I don't want to be a doom and gloomer. Like we can start, start talking about some other geopolitical stuff too, at some point, but like, I'm not a fan of, uh, society breaking down for Bitcoin or whatever to go to our gold, you know, to go up, you know, 10 X or hundred X. It's definitely not my plan. Um, but at the same time, you got to look at the picture the picture you got to think about your family you got to think uh globally about this stuff and it's very very hard to believe that when you see the massive numbers uh that central banks spit out there as far as uh annualized increases in their monetary base it's very hard to believe that de the demand for that currency is rising at the same rate and i can show i think on the latest tweets so I, ha I have it now so i could answer that question about the uh, uh the gold ounces in usd terms but anyway uh if you go to tweet 28 on that tweet storm it's the last 12 months of uh of growth and literally only then other, other than malaysia indonesia and china uh and japan just barely got under it every currency in the top 30 is over 10 percent growth in the last uh, 12 months norway at 851 percent growth canada at 431 percent turkey at 98 uh, Sweden had 74% growth. So like these it's are just massive, numbers. massive numbers. You know, they're going to fund programs. They're going to fund fiscal deficits. Uh, they're going to fund government bonds. That's what they're doing. Uh, Japan sometimes even buys stocks with its monetary base um, uh, increases. Japan owns, I think, the, the, Japan, the, the Bank of Japan, again, the, the entity that, that, uh, that manages and has a monopoly control over the money supply that compares with Bitcoin in Japan. They own, I believe, one-fifth of the top five companies in the Nikkei. 
the bank of Japan itself. I think that's a great, it might be 25%, it might be 20%. But they, uh, you know, they basically own a fifth of the top five companies in the Nikkei, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. I don't know actually what that, they got five trillion, five trillion plus on their balance sheet in USD terms. It's actually not a huge percentage of that is in stocks, but, but still the, the, it's, it's, this is, this is interesting too, is because like a lot of the stuff that Austrian economists and free market economists, classical liberal economists have been, you know, hammering the table on for like 50 years is, uh, at the end of the day, like there is no one, even you can say that you have some legislative rule or some policy or whatever, but there is nothing that's going to stop, uh, these guys from printing because that's all, that's the only thing they know how to do to, to manage a crisis. So no matter what you say, they, they have the ability to print, they have the monopoly power to print, and they'll weasel their way into buying whatever they need to bail out their friends. It's like the United States uh, Federal Reserve started buying mortgage-backed securities uh, owned by you know, bad, bad real estate loans from Fannie and Freddie in 2008. That was not allowed. It was definitely not allowed. They weaseled their way into it for technical reasons that even I don't know, but I know that it was not allowed. And they, they did it, so they indirectly own real estate. They started to do that. I mean, we have the playbook from the Bank of Japan. They started buying stocks in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and this is stuff that like Murray Rothbard and a lot of free market economists had said for a long time. They never got to see it. They never lived to see it. But they said that, yeah, all that the central bank needs to do is buy assets with their printed money to uh, sort of soften the blow of their problems in the past. And they're going to do it. And they were correct in that prediction. They're doing it. Now the US is buying corporate bonds. So they've moved away from government bonds, which is the traditional thing. Uh, as I mentioned, the Winklevoss twins showing the growth of the Federal Reserve's assets. That assets are the side of the balance sheet which they buy stuff with. So the monetary base is on the liability side, basically mirrors, it's a little bit smaller, but it mirrors the assets that they buy. Uh, they're going into corporate bonds now, you know, with the uh, COVID crisis. And, you know, at some point, there'll probably be more real estate and probably be more uh, bonds. And then at some point, maybe it's going to be stocks. And at that point, it really gets weird because it's like, you know, are we just straight up nationalizing the economy? Um, you know, what does it look like there? And I hope it doesn't get to there. We're, we're really far from that, I think, still, because obviously the stock market is, uh, is an $80 trillion beast in itself, globally, globally. It's about $80 trillion. Um, central bank monetary base, as I've shown, is, you know, it's not all of it, but we're about 95% of global GDP is a little under 25 trillion. So we got to, you know, and most of that is in government bonds. So it's, it's not all of it. But again, I'm just getting back to your question about what the roadmap is, what the end game is, where it go, will they, will they not stop printing? I mean, this, these are the things that they're thinking about. And yeah, all the tea leaves seem to be that they're, you know, if rates are going to stay low, if not go negative now, even though they tried to reverse it last couple of years, uh, it's still coming. So yeah. Things, things continue to look uh, good for Bitcoin and gold, at least in my view there. Completely agreed. They're buying high-yield ETFs. They're, <laughs> like, they're buying junk bonds, ETFs. That's fucking... Or they have the ability to. I don't know how many they've actually bought at this point. Yeah. But they, they have yeah. opened up their mandate. That's the other thing. They completely changed their mandate in the spring. Uh, yep. Worked around... Uh, with some voodoo wording and just open created new facilities. I believe that's how they, they made this work around that enabled them to buy some of these assets. And then even before then, so going back to the repo market, uh, the FICC, I forget what it stands for, but they grant the fed granted the FICC 
access to their window an ability to to participate in their auctions or in their ability to sell bad assets to them and they're f- directly funding margin rates of levered hedge funds like millennium 72 um sap cat or i forget who else but sac capital i believe uh it's it's getting insane so i have a few yeah, questions fixed income clearing corporation yes um i forgot myself i was looking it up for you yeah and uh but part of the so, yeah, part of the DTCC, which is the clearing corporation of basically all securities and stocks uh, in in the United States, which again is another thing. Back to talk about uh, claims, not to get too far off of what what you're saying, because it's all I think it's all related, and important. But the uh, importance, the important thing to understand between basic money and non-basic money is that uh, weirdly in the U.S., all of those claims are managed. Uh, by the DTCC, which is strange because like you, you don't even hold the certificate yourself. In other countries, like Fernando talks about this, like in Brazil and stuff, like you actually do own the stock certificate yourself. You buy stock, um, or or even like if you have a money market mutual fund or whatever, you have uh, a direct like claim that either sits your bank sort of manages it, or a tic- typically I guess it's your bank that manages it. It's not that way in the U.S. Like in the way your broker sort of manages a claim on a claim, <laughs> and the DTCC is the one that actually manages all the stock certificates. Uh, it's slightly different because we're talking about equities and not uh, money there. But the same thing, I believe, applies for like money market mutual fund um, and all the rest of these things that are very distant sort of cash equivalents, but they, uh, they're just weirdly managed by this entity, you know, the DTCC. So um, again, you can hold some of those things. You can maybe make a yield on some of those things. Uh, back to what we talked about, our Bitcoin example, if you have the same Bitcoin as loaned out five times, you know, each individual investor needs to make their decision about how much uh, leverage they're comfortable with in the paper that they hold. And um, if they really want uh, to have their wealth and savings in claims versus in, in basic money, which is Bitcoin. And again, it's, happen- it, it's happening every day in Bitcoin, too. I mean, you got wrapped Bitcoin on the Ethereum network. Like, that's a claim on Bitcoin. You have, even though it's, you know, I guess backed 100%. At the moment, um, you, you know, every exchange account that you have in Bitcoin is, is a claim, right? So the moment that you send that in to Coinbase or Kraken or whatever, uh, you got a claim. So you got you to manage that yourself. You got to think about that yourself. And uh, it's also sort of a reason why. Uh, to, actually, sorry, I know I get on these tangents, but I'm just thinking of them off the cuff. I, lo- I love your tangents. Don't worry. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. But there's two, two things here which I think uh, are important to at least, I don't know, ring, ring, one rings hollow and one rings true to me. The one that rings a little bit hollow, and I, and I love him, but what Nick Carter, his sort of crusade on proof of reserves, how he wants exchanges to you know, post their proof of reserves and stuff, I think that's a great thing, and I think what Caitlin Long is doing in Wyoming is interesting. You're seeing more uh, macro prudential from a crypto-oriented, Bitcoin-oriented sort of mindset where you really want to be safe with customers' deposits, and that's great. But they're still doing that in the framework of, I guess, in the United States, the United States sort of uh, uh, financial uh, regulatory codes and, 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 you know, U.S. constitutional laws. We talk about reserves with Bitcoin, like there, there's, you, you really don't need any other proof of reserves other than your own keys. Like you can be your own proof of reserves when you're holding Bitcoin you know, validate on your own note. Like that, that is proof of reserves in Bitcoin. So we have that. We already have that in Bitcoin. 
Um, when you start talking about other institutions proving reserves for you or managing keys for you, even if they don't want to do it in a very like solid risk averse, you know, macro prudential sort of manner, you're still, you're moving away. You're moving up that ladder sort of away up that risk curve away from something that is basic money. So I don't, I don't know. I, I just don't have much, uh, again, I really like Nick's writings and, and all that he talks about there, but I, I don't really have much sort of empathy or need or worry about if exchanges are proving their reserves or not. First of all, I think it's hard to do. That's why most don't do it uh, from a business standpoint, just with the fungibility of accounts. And this is why banks don't do it either. <laughs> and there are other reasons too. There's regulatory reasons which are problematic. It goes back to what I was talking before about the monopolistic control of the money supply. Uh, I guess it's third tangent, sorry. But anyway, the, uh, the, the, so, so the monopoly is a problem, obviously. But if you had a free market, uh, economy, which we pretty much do in Bitcoin, even though the regulators are trying to get their hands all over it. Uh, we've had plenty of problems. We have plenty of problems with claims and issues and overissued Bitcoin. And the market's worked itself out. Bitcoin hasn't failed. A lot of people have lost their shirts, but you know that makes it stronger. So if you want proof of reserves, hold your own Bitcoin, validate your own keys, there's your proof of reserves. And that's the only way it's ever going to be. It's, ever, it's, it's the only way it's ever going to be. If there, if there is like some state that wants to be, you know, it's run by a bunch of anarcho-capitalists and does all Bitcoin and wants property taxes to be paid in Bitcoin or whatever. Uh, that's great. But the moment that they take it off, that you take it off chain, you know, from your own side and you send it to some institution in that state or you send it to some bank or whatever, then you're ta talking about claims. You're talking about M1 Bitcoin or M2 Bitcoin or M3. You're not talking about basic money Bitcoin. So that's, that's again, why I think it's really important to make this distinction between basic money and non-basic money. And the second thing, second tangent, which, which uh, definitely rings true to me here in the context of uh, actually everything that's happening in Bitcoin and the crypto world, uh, the, the DeFi world, the Ethereum world, uh, but also in the regular financial world, uh, is this quote. I said it, I think I said it at one of the Honey Badgers. It's one of my favorite quotes. In, it's probably like my favorite quote in finance. It's by a guy named Rick Rule, who's uh, a resource investor with, uh, with Sprott, Eric Sprott. Um, in Canada, very successful gold and silver and platinum and precious metals uh, investors. Um, <clears throat> he, uh, he has this amazing, amazing quote about pretty money. He's like, he's like, no matter how good and how efficient you think uh, governments are at creating money, at printing money, he's like, no matter how, how good, how much, uh, you know, they can, they can manage the money supply, good or bad, no matter how efficient, how amazing governments are at printing money, you know what? The free market will always do it better. And <laughs> that is a damn, damn true point. I mean, like a lot of times as Bitcoiners or as hard money people or as uh, gold bugs or whoever you want to be, as you talk about these risk averse sort of capitalistic investors, we, we rail against the Fed and everything else. But like no one looks at the junk bond market or the corporate paper market that's just imploding has all these problems and yes yeah, some of that problem is is due to the monopolistic framework that it sits in that i mentioned for sure no doubt but a lot of that's free market too like it's completely unregulated and it's just the i'm not gonna say the animal spirits because i hate that phrase but like it's just the this the natural functionings of the market people prefer a little more interest and a little bit less safety most of the time and a lot of people do get caught with their pants down and a lot of people do lose their shirts and you see this in like the penny stock market you see this in like the gold exploration market you certainly see oil see this, this the, year yeah, you see it in the oil market and you certainly see it in the DeFi market i mean <laughs> this is these are these are claims 
tickets, tokens that are all running around. Uh, most, I mean, basic money Bitcoin, as I'll call it. I, I don't think that Ether is something that competes uh, directly with basic money Bitcoin. It's even been said by the foundation and founders themselves. So I wouldn't call Ether something that's basic money. But yeah, that, that, is, that is exactly the point. It's like no matter, no matter how good or bad you think the government is at printing money, the free market's always going to do it better. And uh, you, should, you should think about that and maybe pay attention to that even more uh, than, than you know, what the government is doing at times and, and be careful. You know, That's a good point. Stocks uh, and all the rest. Individuals have to divine their risk appetite and act accordingly with the products that they interact with. Um, I am very risk averse, so I hold my private keys. And I think going back to the proof of reserves tangent that you went on, it's a very good point, right? Like they could sign a message that proves they own a certain amount of Bitcoin, but then you need the users of that exchange to get together and say, Hey, here's how many Bitcoin it says I have and you have and add that together and, uh, amend that against the, the signed message. But that's logistically probably impossible. Yeah, and I understand there are some technical ways we can get a little bit closer. I haven't read um, all of those proposals, but um, at the end of the day, still, it's you're falling back on something that is clearly more off-chain than on-chain. And like you said, the moment after you post that, things probably change anyway. And that's also the case uh, with with this government basic money, right? I mean, like, I don't know for sure. I guarantee you it's not... Uh, even though I, I, I am reporting that the top 30 floating currencies in the world's monetary base is, uh, is, is uh, 23 point, what's sorry, 23.39 trillion US dollar equivalent as of June 30th, uh, 2020. Uh, obviously, we know that that number is not correct. We know that it changes every day. And even the, their own accounting, we can't be completely sure of. I forget that. What's that movie with Ice Cube and... Um, they they like, Trip, they 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 triple uh, x no 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 they 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 uh they <laughs> raid the this los angeles branch of the fed and they're like uh they're they're, <laughs> they're like you know at this point at three o'clock in the afternoon like the federal reserve does not account for this three trillion or you know, th three three hundred million in cash or whatever <laughs> i can't remember the <laughs> but it's like you know yeah so at this point at three in the afternoon the Federal Reserve, yeah, they, 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 they're never going to know uh, how much cash is truly issued and outstanding uh, on their balance sheet. Unlike Bitcoin, which budgets, uh, balances its, its budget literally every 10 minutes, uh, you, you, you know exactly how many Satoshis are out there, and it updates, and everybody validates it um, worldwide, globally. So it's truly, it's truly an incredible uh, comparison. In yeah. Um. One question that comes up a lot when I share your monetary base updates and write about them is people can't believe that the Japanese yen is number one uh, base yeah. money in the world. Can, yeah. we, can we explain this to people why it is and uh, get them over the mental blocker that it, it is the case that the yen is number one? The U.S. Right. dollar is certainly catching up. Maybe it will surpass it in the next few quarters, depending on what the Fed does. But... Um, to date, it has been number one. I think you alluded to it earlier. They've been doing this for quite a long time. Right. Um, so a couple things there. I, again, I understand the confusion there because you think like the dollar is this always touted as the world's reserve currency. How could it be that another currency has a bigger monetary base? 
again, first of all, we are talking about the monetary base. We're not talking about the monetary base and claims on that monetary base, two completely different things. So uh, I talked about M1, M2, M3. The monetary base globally, again, let's just use round numbers here. It's about $25 trillion equivalent, of which the United States dollar is only $5 trillion, right? So one-fifth, uh, uh, roughly, of, of the monetary base. But claims on all government money, uh, again, which the dollar, euro, yen, and yuan, renminbi, are the, are the top four by far. Uh, then you have the Great British Pound, which is a uh, distant fifth. Claims on that monetary base money, right? We have a savings account, checkings account, uh, time deposit account. That is something in a hundred, probably a hundred trillion uh, at least. And that probably doesn't even count shadow banking. And we're working on, I'm, I'm working on this, getting this more, uh, uh, more encompassed and, and, and sort of a more real-time view of this as well for the, for the Crypto Voices site. Uh, it's, a, it's, uh, it's coming. It's a slow process, unfortunately. But um, so, so yeah, of that $100 trillion in, in claims, which again, that's $100 trillion chasing $25 trillion of monetary base money, uh, there's no doubt that the dollar is, is the m massive, overwhelming uh, denomination of those claims. So I don't know what that number is. It's 50%, 40%, 60%. I don't know the number. But, uh, you know, oil is priced in dollars for now. Um, gold is priced in dollars, right, for now until that goes into Bitcoin, but um, being priced in Bitcoin for sure. But, but, but like those, every, every, all contracts, all derivatives, all contracts for difference, all time deposits, whatever. And certainly, you know, the euro dollar, the euro dollar count, which the euro dollar is basically dollars held overseas away from the United States. That number's unfortunately not published as well. Like I alluded to earlier, uh, the Federal Reserve doesn't publish that. Like they don't publish M3 anymore. That number is at least probably 30 trillion in dollars itself. So of dollars that are held overseas by foreigners or Americans that hold them in Switzerland or whatever. So like that, that th it's at least, you know, it's probably at least 50 trillion out of the hundred trillion in claims that are dollars. So there's no doubt that the U S dollar is the world's reserve currency there, at least as people trade those claims around the world. What we are measuring again, though, is the comparable money supply with Bitcoin and the comparable money supply with gold, with physical gold. So uh, that just is what it is. And as I, as I said, uh, the Japanese have had a big head start, as you said as well, uh, to printing money compared to, like, like to massive quantity, like they basically started quantitative easing um, compared to the rest of the world in the 90s uh, when their stock market bubble collapsed. The same thing as always happens. You know, there was massive credit before. Your stock markets, your debt markets, they collapse. And then the people closest to the crony, cap excuse me, crony capitalist system, they get bailed out. And then there's more easy money that follows and, uh, you know, you reflate the bubble. So the Japanese have been doing that for a long time and the yen has relatively held its value. I mean, there is, uh, of course, I say relatively, like it's definitely way down in the, in the, sort of the last like 20, 30 years than it was before compared to the dollar. But, um, and also uh, the locals primarily own a lot of the Japanese yen. So like the vast majority of that, of that balance sheet of the Bank of Japan, that the $5 trillion equivalent in, in, uh, in yen is held uh, by locals holding their retirement accounts, JGBs, Japanese government bonds, and stocks, as we mentioned, stocks um, and other corporate, uh, corporate paper as well. As we, as we said, the free market can always print better than the government. So the government sometimes wants to buy that and the Japanese government is buying that. So anyway, 
the point is the yen has relatively held its value against the dollar. And also the yuan, the renminbi, uh, the Chinese currency, which was fixed and pegged against the dollar until 2005, I believe, 2005. Then it started to float, not freely. It's not a freely, freely floating currency as all the others, but it's, it's, it's a crawl-like arrangement is what it's called. It definitely has to be on there in this, this calculation. Uh, they, they're actually been bigger many times. Uh, they've been number one many times in this, in both when we've released it and just if you look back over the decades, uh, over the, not over the decades, but over the last uh, 10 years, Bitcoin's life, let's say. So yeah, the, the yen and the yuan, uh, not typically the euro has taken number one slot, but the yen and the yuan have taken number one, even above the dollar. But, but again, that is only on this specific metric that compares to what Bitcoin's money supply compares to, which is basic money. That's, you know, it's how banks settle. There's no more reducible form of money than basic money in society. So if you want to like get a lay of the land, check the landscape, that's just, that's what it is. And if you want to talk claims, we can talk claims. But uh, there's no doubt that the dollar is the mass, massive supermajority of claims in the world. I, I have no, uh, no doubt about that, and your listeners shouldn't be confused about that, uh, th that difference. Yes. Very, uh, very important distinction, but a distinction nonetheless that you have to take into consideration. Um, this is fascinating stuff. I'm very happy that you and Fernando dive into this work, and I know you do a lot of the legwork personally. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Fernando's like, you know, I, I'm I'm all about not doing ad hominem, but you know, in in arguments. But I'm happy to do that. For, for Fernando, he does. <laughs> no, I'm uh, just he, he, Fernando's very good, very good help, very good uh, advisor and contributor to the project as well. <laughs> but getting to the end game here and looping Bitcoin to the center of the stage yep. of this conversation. Uh, you mentioned earlier you're not a doom you don't you don't like doomsday scenarios you don't want the world to have to go to shit for bitcoin to succeed neither do i um i believe bitcoiners and gold bugs alike are just very descriptive like hey if you keep doing this it's probably not going to end well it's happened many times throughout history and uh we i'm comfortable saying are in a uh, information battle to help push people back towards better monies like Bitcoin and gold. And uh, so does the recent development of corporations, whether publicly traded or private, private uh, entities adding Bitcoin to their cash reserves, is that, does that give you hope that maybe we don't need a doomsday? It could be a slow bleed into Bitcoin via corporate treasuries that, this is a diversification tool at first to hedge against uh, the inflation of the dollar sitting on their balance sheet. Um, obviously, not every corporation is going to go uh, full balls to the wall like MicroStrategy, dumping half a billion, basically all their cash into Bitcoin. But do you see a scenario in which doomsday could be avoided by a slow trickle uh, via corporations? Yeah, I, I, I'll be, I think, much less verbose with this answer than others because I think a lot of people have commented on this and um, I certainly agree with most of the commentary in the Bitcoin space, which is, you know, uh, yeah, I agree. And then secondly, I just, I don't know. I think it is amazing what MicroStrategies did. I think that was unexpected. Uh, just incredible, incredible, incredible that, you know, uh, a guy with a $3 billion company decided to put, you know, almost a half a billion of his treasury into Bitcoin. And... 
what a baller move. I mean, because if Bitcoin, if, if his company goes out of business, he's still got half a billion in Bitcoin. If Bitcoin goes out of business, which would we pretty much suspect is pretty difficult these days after, you know, 10 full years, he's still got a $3 billion business. So, uh, it's a baller move. It's a strong move. I was unexpected for me. And I think for a lot of Bitcoiners that a company took that move, I think it's awesome. Uh, and I think it makes Bitcoin all the more resilient to the regulatory attacks and the regulatory capture, at least, uh, I don't know in the short, uh, yeah. I mean, I think it makes, makes it more resilient because you know, how, you know, this is a regulated company and not doing anything illegal. And you know, you're going to try to control Bitcoin capture, Bitcoin. what are you going to try to take their Bitcoin? Um, you know, the, you, you don't know necessarily how they're storing it, whatever. Uh, obviously they said Bitcoin, the Bitcoin, I believe they said, right. But, but you know, regardless, it, like that this, this adds so much to, uh, the story about Bitcoin and, uh, that, yeah, I, I should stop there. Cause really, I don't know how it's going to play out in the, in the future, but I really, really like this move, uh, from Mr. Saylor. I think it's awesome. It's just awesome. Yeah. I forget what interview it was. I think it might have been his interview with Raul Paul. Uh, and talking about, so looping back to, is there demand for the currency out there uh, that's being printed? And it seems like it may be waning from an investor standpoint because he basically said, hey, if I'm going to deploy capital as a corporate entity, the, the amount of potential returns I can get in traditional markets and traditional avenues of deploying capital just aren't there whether it be real estate um stock buybacks uh reinvesting in in the company like it doesn't seem like i'm going to get as much return in this environment than i would uh betting on something as asymmetric as bitcoin so i think that's uh that was an interesting point he made about deploying capital and bitcoin just made sense from a uh risk perspective yeah yeah, I saw that. I saw that uh, analysis and that reasoning, and you know, he's saying, you know, what's gonna what's gonna accrue value to us as a company for a hundred years? You know, he's thinking, he's thinking pretty long term there, and um, that's just impressive, very, very impressive. And um, I don't know. Do you, do you think more companies are gonna start doing it, or do you think it's a one off for a while? I think so, and so this, I think so, and this brings us back to. The Fed can keep doing this forever as much as we don't want them to. Like, is this how they are forced to reel in their policy if corporate, more and more corporations continue doing this? Because there was a couple companies in Canada, yes, smaller, but they started announcing it. And I just think uh, it's gotten to the point in corporate boardrooms where if you're not having a discussion uh, about whether or not you should allocate a little bit at least to this, you're probably... Uh, you're probably not doing your due diligence. And I think uh, that's one thing corporate boardrooms can't, um, can't allow is just the public thinking that they're, they're not staying up to date and doing enough due diligence uh, for, for their corporate strategy. That's nuts, man. I, I love it. I mean, I just love m mixing up boardrooms like that. And you hear it as well, like a lot of Bitcoin podcasts and, people we talk to as well. I mean, it's just the last 12 to 24 months, you know, I think, uh, Bitcoin, the, the, the tone and, and tenor around the word Bitcoin in corporate boardrooms is changing, uh, just vastly. And COVID is not, you know, it's not swinging that back in the other direction. It's only increasing that. Yeah. To be more friendly, yeah. by the way, if it wasn't clear. So, 
so I guess we're in a race uh, between freedom money and a dystopian future trying to be thrust upon us by uh, the new world order, if you will. The yeah, we'll say but, let's let's we won't call it the new world order. We'll call it the World Economic Forum and their their <laughs> vision for a great reset using uh, COVID nineteen as a an impetus to implement what seems to me to be terrible global policy. They basically want to make the whole world a socialist, uh, lovey dovey collective. At least, yeah. I th- like if you've read the Great Reset papers, it's literally what they're saying. Yep, and with their CBDCs is the the latest buzzword, as they like to call their new digital money. It went from virtual currency to now CBDC is the bud buzzword that they're using. And uh, yeah, I mean, like you know, nothing can be, uh, uh, you know, how do I say this? Bitcoin certainly can't be the one because you know it's there's no one that controls it, no one that takes care of you if you lose it, uh, no one you know manages it in a prudent manner. It certainly can't be Bitcoin. So why not CBDC? You know, we'll take the best parts of Bitcoin and we'll make it on our own dedicated ledger and see all the flows of funds of, all around the world, uh, which China is already doing in many ways with its uh, uh, its bankers' claims and its uh, its banks that it controls. Uh, you know, completely, and also its technology companies with uh, with you know WeChat, Tencent, and everything. Uh, but they're definitely going to put in that that next layer of that CBDC where you can literally see every single transaction uh, controlled and validated by the central bank uh, instantly. So it's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. Um, that's the message that, that uh, they seem to keep keep being put out. And it's like every, you know, is that, I guess it's BIS released that paper at the start of the year about the growth of CBDC research. Uh, we always hear about China's CBDC Going to be the Christine Lagarde came out imminently. last week saying that uh, they're going to be doing a lot more research on CBDCs. Yeah, yeah, and they always put in that framework of like you know the Bitcoin is Bitcoin, but obviously it's not nearly going to satisfy our needs or the needs of uh, you know our uh, our wonderful populace. So um, yeah, it's it's definitely a race, definitely a race. Uh, I think stable coins are going to be a big part of that. I've said that for a long time. I think stable coins will be easy to regulate into uh, uh, a framework that they want. And we've obviously seen fl- uh, stable coins have already been blacklisted with some transactions. There's USDC, I think it was, that yep. blacklisted some. And um, so I think stable coins will be regulated into that framework. Uh, and then how that settles into a CBDC which uh, is a totally digitally native, you know, controlled by the uh, by Federal Reserve, uh, you know, technocrat uh, will be interesting uh, to see. But um, yeah, it, it does seem like it's going it, to it's it's inevitable there because I don't think. Uh, well, I know, I know for sure that they're not just going to let uh, Bitcoin just you know waltz in take take over yeah take over the world in such an easy easy manner but it does bitcoin is the is the peaceful way to do it which is very very interesting that we actually uh we have this technology that we see we can use we can peacefully transact and man when you look around the world today uh i certainly think that we we need it but um yeah well look what's going on around the world the, you've messed up the pricing mechanism and people's quality of life goes down you, you're forced to have two parents in the workforce having less kids making less money living in smaller homes owning less assets 
at the end of the day, and it makes sense that we have a, a, a world that seems to be going to shit, at least socially yeah. here, uh, here in America. We were talking about this before we hit record, but like it really pisses me off that we're the powers that be are trying to incite a race war when it is clearly a class war, an economic uh, class distinction that is driving the the strife in the United States. And that's not to say that there aren't racist people here and cops could could do a better uh, don't need to do a better job of de-escalating certain situations but uh i would argue those are not the biggest problems we have right now they're economic and then when you compare them to uh instances around the world like what's going on in belarus right now it's just laughable how childish we look as as a nation yeah yeah this one definitely hits close to home for me because you know as a as a Latvian American, as most of my listeners know, uh, you know, as having grown up in Ohio and being pretty, uh, having a pretty uh, uh, American upbringing and then going to see, you know, the family roots in Europe for the last 15 years. Um, I, I'm just baffled to see that, like, it's, it's the U.S. now that is faltering in its sort of upholding of just sort of everything from individual liberty and rights to, you know, to, uh, to property rights and to like, uh, just, just upholding these values that, that, you know, we all like that I grew up as understand is pretty, pretty sacrosanct and pretty important. And, uh, I say this all the time, like just kind of give, uh, your, maybe some of your listeners who don't haven't heard me say this just some perspective, but like it, the greatest example of all this, of just, of all this madness, um, was the failing of the Soviet Union at the end of the 1980s, 1990, 1991. Uh, and it was an amazing event, unlike what happened in Yugoslavia at the start of the 90s. Um, it was peaceful. It was peaceful in the Soviet end of the Soviet Union. The Baltics, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, they were the first ones out. They had this like singing revolution at the end of the 80s. They were peaceful. They were different people. They knew that they never were a part of the, they never wanted to be a part of this communist manifesto that uh, the Soviet Union started in the 20s under just horrible, horrible, horrible uh, misled uh, promises to the proletariat and poor people and uh, people that were uneducated in Eastern Europe. And by the way, we had poor people and people that were uneducated, uneducated uh, in the U.S. as well, part of the progressive era. A lot of bad things happened then, but we also had private property rights and like more sound heads sort of won the day there, at least, at least as far as those issues go. Um, you know, that just destroyed lives for 50 years in, uh, in Eastern Europe. And by the way, everyone in Eastern Europe is white. So <laughs> it has nothing to do with, I completely agree with your first point. It has nothing to do with race. You can destroy an economy, whether you, whatever color, uh, color, race, or creed that you are, you can absolutely destroy an economy by bad socialist dictatorial policies. And the Baltics, uh, luckily, uh, ran as far away as they could. They actually had pre-Soviet Union constitutions they could fall back on. They had property rights. It wasn't easy. There's still problems here, plenty of problems. But they understand and appreciate, like, the value of freedom and property and, uh, you know, just liberty and, tr like, true freedom. And everything that has happened in Eastern Europe now, uh, the, the, the other remaining Soviet countries, which didn't really have these independent constitutions to fall back on, they didn't re really have some of these values. And by the way, the Baltics, again, when they ran as far as they could, they ran in the, you know, a lot of libertarians in Europe and, and the U.S. might disagree with some of these things about defense and whatnot. But like for the, for the Baltics, it's very good that they're in the European Union. They use the euro 
and they're in NATO. And I'm not saying that Euro is a good thing. I'm just saying that as part as part of being uh, as part of these local blocks of like-minded people, it's it's very good for a small small country. Uh, compare that with um, you know, so 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 the Russian troops and 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 the you know basically the the Soviet troops, they left the Baltics in the 90s. It's a good thing they did because if they didn't, we'd have the same problems that you've had in Ukraine since 2014, and now that you're having in Belarus, where literally you have dictators there that have been in Belarus's case, this guy's been in charge since 1994, absolute madman, uh, murders his own people. There's no free press. There's no free uh, journalism there. Every media outlet is state-run media outlet. And if you're, you know, the protests have been encouraging, they've been heartwarming. Uh, in the Baltics, they've been reenacting this thing. Uh, for, uh, we can put a link in the show notes. Maybe Fernando and I interviewed a friend of mine from Belarus who's not in Belarus at the moment, but he's very good at English and can give a good perspective because there's not too many people that, that speak English there, actually. But, um, well, I shouldn't say that. The young people definitely do, but, but it's, it's a very Slavic, Russian, Russian-speaking country. And, um, you know, this, this, stuff is, this stuff rings very, very true for me because literally 100 miles from me right now, uh, is a place where we were all under the same umbrella of mad, horrible, communist, socialist-run regimes with no private property, black markets. Everything was just awful. And by the way, all white people. So, you know, white people can be dumb and manage the economy when you have... You know, it's, it's nothing to do with... <laughs> I, I really feel like saying that a, that a lot because, yeah, it's the, I completely agree with you on the, the people just missing the mark on the racial overtones, although I absolutely completely support... Um, People that are, you know, you have to get like you have to get bad policemen under control in the U.S. We can talk about that separately, but I definitely support reform there, no doubt. Uh, and like stuff that the young NBA players are doing and trying to do like social change—it's all great. That's fantastic. Absolutely, we should support that, and no doubt about it. But if you just look at the way that an economy is run, look at what happened in Eastern Europe. We we're all under the same umbrella. Now the Baltics, literally a hundred miles from me, we are living, no joke anywhere from 10 to 100 times better than the people in Belarus. And uh, we have com we're completely plugged into Western markets. Uh, we have free press. We have internet that works and won't get like shut off. Uh, knock on wood, although I know that everybody around the world everywhere is actually concerned about that these days in the U.S. as well. But uh, it, it is just, it's night and day different to what's happening to the people of Belarus. And the people of Belarus, they're finally fed up after, you know, 26 years of this dictator. They're finally fed up. And uh, they're peacefully protesting. They're trying their best. Uh, but it's, it's, they're violent crackdowns, violent crackdowns. I mean, as Andre said, I mean, they're going to spray paint you. They're going to spray paint you a different color when you're out protesting based on what they want to do with you. If they want to just fine you, if they want to get you off the streets, they wanna, if they want to uh, put you in jail, if they want to maybe do something pretty drastic to you, they're just going to spray paint your clothes. Uh, and maybe you'll have a staged suicide because that is definitely what has been happening. They beat the hell out of you in, in prison. So, like, I have just no sympathy, no empathy for anyone uh, in the U.S. who's, like, looting, violent, um, not respecting any property rights, as, you know, probably some of these people are, like, sons of some socialist, sons and daughters of some socialist, uh, uh, socialist-leaning political professors. They live upper middle class, and then, they're, you know, they're white, and they're probably, like, saying they're part of Black Lives Matter, and then they're, like, you know, violently attacking people and, and, uh, and looting. All right, maybe I'm not being fair. I'm not over there. I'm not, I'm not living in Portland, no. but that's, that's what I'm hearing. That's what I'm saying. That's, uh, I think New York Post actually 
wrote an article identifying some of the people got arrested for rioting in the city and yeah all from the upper west side upper east side uh park slope like rich middle class people are just angry at the world because uh, I mean, of reasons i don't know i i don't i again i said i try to stay away from ad hominems unless it comes with fernando and i really do uh i really do here but i mean i would like to call those people the worst thing i mean like just the worst thing like what what principle do you have uh, if you're, if you're, I mean, are you just bored with life? I mean, like what, what principle do you have if you go on and you're violent to people, if you're looting, if you're destroying businesses, destroying people's property, do you even know what real oppression is? Do you even know what you're standing up, uh, quote unquote against? And uh, two different stories, United States, former Soviet Union. I'm not saying I, I'm, I'm absolutely saying that, uh, the history of the United States is better as far as it comes to property rights in this regard than happens in the Soviet Union. Are there plenty of problems with race in the U.S.? Yes, absolutely, 100%. Just like I said, support NBA players doing what they're doing and, 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 and social change that's happening uh, with certain you know, young groups in the U.S. But, I mean, this, this violent stuff that I'm seeing out of the U.S. is so discouraging and so just missing the mark. I mean, come to Belarus. Come to Belarus. Burn, a, you know, burn some buildings. Burn a van. Uh, loot protests, try to burn some shops, which, you know, can't even deliver bread anyway, and then see what happens to you. I mean, see, see what sort of state media is going to uh, cover your protest, see what's going to happen uh, physically to you uh, when you're picked up into a van never seen again, and there's a staged suicide. I mean, like, you have no idea. You have no idea what you're up against uh, when it comes to, you know, real dictatorial authoritarian socialist threat in the world and it's all from socialist communist corrupt regimes and by the way the worst one in the world the worst one in the world until perhaps now with china but the worst one in the world in the 20th century was the soviet union they were all white they completely fucked it up completely screwed the push and literally destroyed two to three generations of lives um it's just it's maddening it's maddening to me it strikes very close to home. I mean, I'm not happy where I am right now uh, in terms of a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of people in the world who's traveling and the pandemic and everything else. But to see, you know, to see the dichotomy here of, of these, as you said, these, if it's Upper West Side or wherever, it, this type of people, these university poli-sci children in Portland, wherever, wherever these people are that are just completely disrespecting property rights. I don't know. I have no, I have no respect for them, and I think they have no idea uh, what what true oppression uh, really means? So I don't know. I guess I got to get out my soapbox there. No, the sadistic, legitimately stupid thing about the things these people are pushing for is that they will usher in a a economic governmental system like the one in Belarus that you just described. Like if you you're literally fighting so-called oppression and your solution to that suppression is an economic system that will suppress more people than have ever been suppressed in this country. And it's, yeah. it's, it is scary being here and seeing it gain, gain traction and seeing the media like cling on to these, these socialist ideas is defund the police, black lives matter, the organization, which is openly Marxist people throwing hundreds of millions. I think they've raised more than a billion dollars this year so you literally just funded a, a Marxist institution to instill an attempt to bring their their political economic system to fruition. Um, 
And then I've heard like that 70. about the Marx, the Marxist roots. Yeah, some of the founders of Black Lives Matter have heard that as well. Very dangerous. Extremely They dangerous. have it in their mission statement on the website. If you go read it, like they want to. <sighs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, they, like they, there is only one end to these sorts of uh, revolutions, and it's basically you get shot in the back of the head. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. Like there's no, like, you know, people, like people, find this in the US and Canada and Western society that never had a real problem. So they find this in like books, like follow, you know, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson wrote the forward of the re-release of the Gulag Archipelago, which is Solzhenitsyn's like very uh, true and telling story of the Soviet gulags. And like basically work death camps is what a gulag is. And if, if uh, you know, people can find that, but it's a rare breed. Jordan Peterson is a rare breed in the university ethos uh, you know, definitely a closer to the business, classical, liberal-minded type of person, where most of these socialist, uh, communist professors who just babble on about, uh, you know, some communist leader or something that happened in the French Revolution or whatever, like I, I don't, I, it's 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 unbelievable to me that they can completely miss the mark of real history of what happens here. Uh, the Soviet Union is a shining example, and then we don't have to look far, much farther than today than the. Uh, People's Republic of uh, China, the the communist, uh, the communist People's Republic of China, that party. Uh, I mean, we, like, they have camps in the west of the, the country now to re-educate um, Muslim Sterilize. Minorities. Yeah, I mean. Sterilize, re-educate, sell their organs to Saudi Arabia. It's... It, it's it's like this is not a free market that is doing this. This is not capitalism, classical liberalism that is doing this. This is a very specific ideology, the Communist Party, and it's just you know Ch China's going through a lot of you know I, 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 again I don't know you you stop me here and my when you want me to stop running on these tangents but like China is it's very interesting how the playbook gets repeated. You read a lot of books. Um, one I'm thinking of is Mervyn King's, the former governor of the Bank of England, who's actually very uh, balanced. Governor again. I try to look for the more balanced economic people in these central banks. There's not too many, uh, but anyway, he he he's he's pretty uh, sound, uh, balanced sort of former governor of the Bank of England, and he writes. I've 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 heard this other places as well. You talk to like these, you know, this whatever in the '90s and the 2000s as communist uh, as China sort of sort of becoming more capitalist, sort of opening up to the world, and clearly is becoming a massive creditor to countries like the United States and blocks like Europe. Uh, he's talking to the leaders of these of the communist party you know during this more calm times right and they're saying you know we really learn from you we really learn from you in the west we really learn from you uh we, we learn from your mistakes we're going to try to do uh, better and we're pretty confident that we will do better and we can make a communist system that's going to be much more just balanced and fair this and that i mean look it's what, ha what what is happening right now and even if if you want to get mad about covid and i'm not uh again this is not a race thing at all it's not a race thing but if you want to get mad about covid don't even look at the Wuhan lab. Don't even look at any, any, uh, anything, conspiracy theory, whatever. Just look at one thing. The Communist Party, the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party is basically, uh, they haven't learned anything from what happened to the Soviet Union with Chernobyl, who basically stayed silent for, I think it was a week. Uh, it might have been even longer. I can't remember off the top of my head, but like, uh, countless, it was good weather at the time. Countless of people have suffered from uh, the problems of Chernobyl uh, at the end of the 80s. It's a great, uh, the, the Chernobyl miniseries on HBO, by the way, was filmed in Lithuania in the Baltics, and they did a great job of showing like the incompetence of managers of something like 
uh, a power plant and how no one takes responsibility. You know, I was sleeping or I wasn't here. How could I be responsible? This and that. And like how disasters can occur at when you have like horribly run nuclear power plants run by a communist state. Anyway, you bring it back to COVID. Like if you really want to, if you like, I'm not saying we have to do this. I'm saying world moves past whatever, but if you really want to blame someone, I mean, those Google images, <laughs> satellite shots of those Wuhan hospitals a year ago, more than a year ago, it was clear that they were keeping this a secret. It was clear that it didn't start in January. I mean, it's COVID-19, right? It didn't start in December. It was clear that it was well, well before then. And yeah, who kept it a secret? The Communist Party. It's, they're, they're, you know, no one's going to learn you know, when you have all these institutional problems, no one is going to learn from these mistakes or whatever. It's just what they do. It's institutionalism is awful, awful, awful way to run your society. And um, yeah, if you want to blame one person for COVID or, or one thing for COVID, we can absolutely blame the Communist Party, uh, you know, but they still are going to have their fair share of champions in the U.S. and people have no idea how history works so that the 100 million deaths that happened in the 20th century all happened in the face of communists. Uh, socialist uh, governments and by the way the nazis were national socialists so i mean it's it's just it's incredible it's incredible that people can't learn this stuff oh right it seems that there's been a concerted effort in our education system to keep people away from learning this type of stuff uh yeah it's i don't know fucked, man, man. How, how do we I, how do we uh how do we get it back on a positive note you, you i have faith me. though i have faith bitcoin is the the uh the largest advancement in the preservation of natural rights since the constitution and we have that bring it back to property rights nothing yep. protects property rights better than the bitcoin network in my opinion yep absolutely balances its budget every 10 minutes uh and certainly if not every two weeks um but it's it's an amazing system that uh again i, I think if if you look at all the other monetary systems in the world and i'm a big fan of uh looking at some of these ones in the past i mean Gold, silver, claims, government fiat money, whatever. Um, it's just, it's incredible to me that we know precisely every 10 minutes the amount of uh, Bitcoin that there are in the world. And I was actually just checking, that movie is Den of Thieves, by the way. Ice Den of Sun. Thieves. It was in it. Den of Thieves. But yeah, they're like, you know, at three o'clock, 30 million, you know, at this <laughs> point, it's unaccounted for. 30 million in cash is unaccounted for by the Federal Reserve. Does not exist. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and it's, it's much more than that, much more than that, that no doubt gets uh, squandered away, uh, bailed away, bailed out to their cronies and friends and uh, so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, I definitely have a lot of hope for Bitcoin, but it's, it's scary times, man. Scary times. Uh, definitely would just encourage your listeners if they want to, you know, reach out to me if they want to learn more about what's happening in Eastern Europe. But I would say... Uh, try to read more about what's happening in Eastern Europe because this blueprint has been followed again and again and again. It's usually taken up by uh, uneducated, poor families that have nothing left to lose, so they're very uh, amenable to these types of promises from a Marxist, communist, socialist government. It's the same playbook again and again and again. Um, it's it's uh, it's very unfortunate, and I, I just cannot believe that the United States is, is a country right now that is sort of dealing with these issues. Um, it's definitely a top-down issue. It's not a left-right issue. It's not a black or white issue, in my view. Uh, and again, just you don't have to look farther than Eastern Europe to see that. That's, I mean, shit, we could tie this back to the money supply, right? Like, it's a money issue. You, you misprice the mechanic. You 
fuck up the pricing mechanism, excuse me, and it has ripple effects throughout the economy that that take a while to, to, to take hold, but they have taken hold, I would argue, at this point. And so focusing on the big cause of consternation today, which is the lack of discipline and uh, ability of police forces to actually uh, be adequate at their jobs, uh, I mean, you, you print a bunch of money, you go a bunch of wars, the militarization of the police is very well documented. Like, you... Uh, bring that military gear home, give it to police. They have it. They want to use it. And on top of that, they're not getting training. There's an incredible podcast. I know a lot of people are poo-pooing Rogan recently, but he had a recent episode with Jocko Willick, which I really think everybody should go listen to because Jocko basically explains the beginning of that episode when he went on a a deployment for Marines for six months, a six-month deployment. They trained for 18 months. These police are put in a situation where they only train for like three weeks for their whole careers. And then they're put in these high stress situations. There's no accountability for um, mental well-being of the police officers or physical well-being. A lot of them are out of shape and can't handle high stress situations. And that's where I would focus fixing uh, police uh, departments. You don't have to burn down cities to do that. Uh, And this, again, you get, print a bunch of money you get lazy you think you can print your way out of problems it leads to this lethargy and complacency that puts us in weird situations and again i'm optimistic uh, i think bitcoin is going to be more integrated in the u.s economy we've seen it with MicroStrategy putting it on their corporate balance sheet i would not be surprised if at least five i'm gonna put the over under at five corporate entities announce uh, publicly traded companies announced their intention to adopt Bitcoin or the fact that they already have adopted Bitcoin in some capacity by the end of the year. And then just what I'm seeing with Bitcoin mining here in North America and oil and gas fields, we're going to integrate the energy sector with Bitcoin pretty aggressively yeah, in the that. next five years. And I don't think there's any there. turning back once that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, I saw some of your work there. That's, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty awesome. I definitely and definitely agree with yeah. Uh, with so the views there. Yeah, it's it's happening. The the oil and gas industry specifically is is really thinking about Bitcoin seriously right now. So yeah, and I, you know, like that's a, that's all good points. I think like there's no start date as all this stuff. There's no start date. There's no end date. End date to uh, to all this stuff. And like I, I I say this a lot as well when I sort of talk about inflation and like sort of the ideal view that we want to get to as a society or, or whatever. Like um, you know, my, I'm pretty sure my ideal society, your ideal society, you know, unless we really succeed with transhumanism and stuff, we probably will never like really see, you know, anywhere from a hundred years to 500 years from now, uh, we're talking, you know, not just 200 sovereign flags around the country, but you know, like around the world, but you know, 7 billion, 10 billion sovereign flags, however, however many, uh, people we have at that time. And again, the people are always going to be complaining about something at some point, always going to be, uh, transcending and emerging, from beyond uh, the, the state where they are. So like I definitely long-term super, super optimistic and things like you just said about oil and gas, absolutely, uh, absolutely apply there. But like bringing it back to like the state of the police in the US as well, I, I agree. Like I've heard all that, that those uh, uh, ideas about retraining and stuff. And if you burn it all down, I mean, again, you're no better than uh, former, you know, Germany after World War II or the Soviet Union after World War II or Eastern Europe, just, like just completely destroyed, completely burnt down. And it took a long time to regrow. And even then, if you're under socialist uh, leadership and system, you're not going to grow nearly at all. 
so, so there's, there are all of those things. Um, but I would just say like, yeah, I, I definitely am for the more gradual, uh, sort of rolling back of problems and how that goes. Like I would love a private, I would love it where back to, you know, the 7 billion sovereign flags, I would love where we had, you know, private insurance, private defense, uh, Bitcoin and all sorts of other things, which keep a, a free market society going. But, you know, you tell, I would never bring that up at a dinner party because people think you're like crazy or just extremely boring and pessimistic. Like, you know, that's just naive. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. So yeah, it, it might not in our lifetime, but I mean, if you just, if you just stick to a principle and you try to stick to these free market principles and you try to keep pointing out that, you know, all you are doing when you say that our system won't work or it's unrealistic, whatever, you're just doing a Nirvana fallacy. You're showing something that's impossible to achieve and it's just saying, Oh, well, your system won't achieve that, so it's not going to work. <laughs> well, I can show you the opposite of Nirvana fallacy, which is a fucking hell fallacy, and I can show you that your system achieved that many, many times, a hundred million times over in the last centuries. Ours did not. Uh, so that's definitely, I think, where we got to go. We got to stay positive about it, and um, I would love to have more private sort of systems in the U.S., more localized city states, whatever you want to talk about. But I mean. Um, uh, it's, yeah, it's not going to happen any, anytime soon. So we just got to, got to focus on positive. Keep chugging along, Matthew. Yep. It's always an immense pleasure. Thank you for the work that you do. Um, I wish we could go longer here, but I gotta, I gotta jump to this funeral. Yep. Uh, yep. is there anything you want to leave the freaks with any parting notes? Where can we find you? Um, any information you want to share? Yep. Uh, so cryptovoices.com is the website, uh, cryptovoices.com slash base money or base money.world is where you can find more information about what we've been talking about today. Um, we publish that, uh, base money update, uh, every quarter we are working, uh, I've been saying this a lot to, to my listeners. It's been slower pushing out the content every week, uh, this, this year, frankly. Um, but we're, you know, I'm working on some other content. Fernando's doing a lot with his YouTube channel down in, uh, in Brazil, which I'm on sometimes. Uh, so you can find him there, but, um, yeah, we're, 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 uh, we're continuing on and, uh, definitely happy to talk to you anytime, Marty, all the best, uh, all the best, uh, this morning at this funeral and everything. I'm really glad to talk to you, uh, beforehand. Yes. Can't wait till we can meet in person, throw back some beers again. Yeah, absolutely, man. Got to, uh, got to, yeah. Can't wait for that. Got to, got to figure out a way to travel safely to you. But, uh, once, <laughs> once, once we're there, it'll be, it'll be up. We'll, f- we'll figure it out. Um, yeah. that's all we got this week, freaks. Peace and love. Take care.